You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. Today I'd like to talk to you about Aquinas' views on four different questions. The first is, is the uncaused cause perfect? And a good question to ask about that question is, well, what exactly is meant here by perfect? Secondly, I want to talk a little bit about does human language apply to God? How does it apply to God? Aquinas, as we'll see, has a quite sophisticated account of how language, human language does and does not apply to God. Third, I'd like to address the question, is God like the force in Star Wars? And then finally, could there be more than one uncaused cause? So let's consider these questions and talk about uh, Aquinas' views about God. So is the uncaused cause perfect? You might expect Aquinas to answer this question, yes. Uh, but what he says is this, that God is not perfect in its original sense. That is, God is not perfect in the original meaning of the word. And the original meaning of the word is thoroughly made, per factus. Now, why is God not perfect in that original sense of the word? Well, if you think about, for instance, say your cell phone, the cell phone is perfect if it's made properly, if the directions of the engineers were followed and the uh, manufacturing plant is working the way it should, you might say that the cell phone comes out and it's thoroughly made. It functions just the way it was designed to function. But God, of course, can't be perfect in that sense because God, being the first cause, is not thoroughly made, isn't made at all. And so God is not perfect. But Aquinas does think that God is perfect in another sense. Is there any sense in which God is perfect? Well, yes. He says, by a certain extension of the name, perfect is said not only of that by which by way of becoming reaches a completed act, but also of that which, without any making whatever, is in completed act. So, as you know, Aquinas thinks that God is complete act, perfect actuality, maximal activity, you might say. And so, God is perfect, not in the sense of being thoroughly made, but in the sense of being completed, being perfected, being everything that God is and can be. Aquinas continues, it is thus that, following the words of Matthew, we say that God is perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here we see a recurring theme for Aquinas, the harmony between faith and reason. That reason teaches us that God is perfect, and faith also teaches us that God is perfect, but again, not perfect in the everyday normal sense of that term perfect, not in the sense of being thoroughly made. Aquinas offers another argument. He says, but just as every excellence and perfection is found in a thing according as that thing is, so every defect is found in it according as it is in some way not. So here we get this understanding of Aquinas, which is quite important, of what evil is or a defect is. If 
perfection is to be thoroughly made. A defect is lacking that. It's not perfectly made. And so the idea here is that evil is a lack of due perfection. And we can talk about this in both the physical order and in the moral order. So in the physical order, let's say that you have a broken leg. Well, your leg is obviously not perfect if it's broken. And you might say that you're suffering or enduring an evil. That is the evil of having a bad leg, a broken leg. And a broken leg is lacking the perfection that it had before. In other words, the bones aren't in the proper place. And the same thing is true of a moral evil. Like for instance, when someone murders somebody else. Aquinas's way of thinking about that would be that the, the killer is lacking in something that the killer ought to have. For instance, love for other people or justice to other people or compassion for other people. So the evil that exists in the physical order, like having a bad leg, and the evil that exists in the moral order, having a bad character, are alike in that they both involve a lack of some perfection that this individual can and ought to have. So Aquinas continues, just as God has being holy, so non-being is wholly absent from him. In other words, God is the perfection of activity, the perfection of being. And so non-being is something that God doesn't have. But non-being is precisely a kind of defect, a kind of lack. For as a thing has being in that way, it is removed from non-being. So to the degree that God has existence and being, to that very degree, he's lacking non-being. But to the degree that he's lacking non-being, God is lacking in defect. Or to put it differently, to the degree that God is lacking non-being, God is perfect. Hence, Aquinas continues, all defect is absent from God. He is, therefore, universally perfect. All defect is absent from God. Why? Because all non-being is absent from God, and defect is a non-being. Again, each thing is perfect according as it is in act, and imperfect according as it is in potency and lacking act. So, again, think about the broken leg. The broken leg is bad, right? It's imperfect. Why? Well, it's lacking the proper bone structure that it should have. And the reason it's lacking that structure is that it first has potency. In other words, your legs have the potency for getting broken. And that which is in no way in potency, but is pure act, therefore must be most perfect. So in God, since he lacks all potency, he can't be imperfect. He can't be lacking in anything because any lack presupposes a kind of potency. And so God is pure act, and if pure act, then most perfect. Such however is God. So when we talk about God, it's important to keep in mind this distinction Aquinas draws between the res significata and the modi significandi. And these are Latin terms. The res significata means the, sig the thing signified. 
and the modi significandi means the modes of signifying. And the basic idea is pretty simple to explain. You can have one individual thing, say me, and describe me by means of different diverse modes of signification. So you could describe me as the son of Bob, or as the husband of Jennifer, or as the father of Caroline. And these are different modes of signifying the very same individual, namely me. But we ought not to confuse the diversity or the plurality of the modes of signifying and think that that means there's many different things that are signified. So the perfection of God, Aquinas thinks, surpasses the perfection of every creature. God is the cause of all creatures, and the reality of God, the perfection of God, surpasses the reality and perfection of creatures. And so Aquinas thinks that when we're speaking about God, we can speak about God in really two different ways. One would be negative, and we've talked about that earlier, the idea of negative theology or apophatic theology. That is where you say that God is not composed. God is not a body. God is not a being with potency. On the other hand, another way of speaking about God is comparatively, that is to say, something like the perfection of God surpasses the perfection of every creature, or God's goodness is greater than the goodness of every creature. So we have a unity of divine being, or at least Aquinas will argue that a little bit later, but a plurality of names. We use a number of different names to describe God. And divine naming arises from human knowledge. Our human knowledge arises from our senses, and it involves composition and division, that is putting propositions together, putting terms together in propositions. And our way of understanding involves a kind of diversity. And so our names for God involve a kind of diversity and plurality. But the absolute unity of the divine being is compatible with the plurality of the modes of signifying the divine being. So Thomas affirms that the res significata, that the thing signifies, and he denies the modus significandi of the name. So let's talk a little bit more about naming things. We have univocal use of terms. So for instance, if I say Mary is a woman and Elizabeth is a woman, I'm using the term woman in exactly the same sense. I mean, an adult female human being. On the other hand, we have other terms that are used equivocally. So if I speak of the bank of the river and the bank where I leave my money, the term bank is spelled the same and sounds the same, but I'm using the term in two totally unrelated uh, meanings, right? So the bank of the river really has nothing at all to do with the bank where you put your money. And then finally, there are the analogical use of terms. So that's where you use one term like healthy, and it's neither pure equivocation, totally unrelated senses of the term, nor is it univocal use of speech, where you mean exactly the same thing by the term. So if I speak of a healthy apple, a healthy individual, and healthy blood test, 
I'm using healthy there in three related senses. So it's not pure equivocation like the bank of the river and the bank where I put my money, but also it's not univocal speech. Now, in terms of this example, you might say that uh, a fruit is healthy. And what that really means is that fruit is the cause of health. And you might say the individual is healthy. And you might say that means the individual has this state of health. And then the healthy blood test, in that sense, healthy means a sign of health. So healthy there is used not in exactly the same sense, because a cause of health is different than a sign of health, and that's different than a state of health, but not totally unrelated senses either. So Aquinas' idea is that language about God, when it's positive, when it's saying God is good or God is perfect, positive speech about God is analogical rather than univocal. So is God good? People of faith would say yes. And Aquinas thinks that we can come to the same conclusion through using reason and philosophy. So Aquinas here is arguing against some views like the Cathars and the Manichaeans who would want to say that God is not perfectly good. Now, if God is really perfect, well, that which is perfect is good. And so God must be good. And we saw before how Aquinas believes that indeed God is perfect. So if that's true, if God really is perfect, well, then God must also be good. Aquinas holds that that which exists is good and evil is a lack of existence. But of course, God is the necessarily existing being. So God has to be good. So let me break this down a little bit more. When Aquinas says that that which exists is good and evil is a lack of existence, he's referring to this idea of evil as a lack of due perfection. And we talked a little bit about this before, that if you've got a broken bone, your bones are lacking the existence they should have. And if you've got a bad character, that means you're lacking justice, you're lacking compassion. And by contrast, if you have all that you should have, well, then you're good. And so God has all that he should have. He's necessarily existing being. And so God is good. In fact, Aquinas holds that not only is God good, but God is goodness itself, the cause of all goodness here below. So is God, though, like the force? In Star Wars, the force is partly good and partly bad, a mix of the light side and the dark side. So according to Aquinas, is the uncaused cause like the force? Well, that's another way of asking the question, can there be evil in God? Is God a combination of good and evil? And that's exactly what the force is, right? Not just pure good and also not pure evil, but rather a combination of light side and dark side, good and evil. So Thomas writes against this view, against a kind of divine dualism. He thinks that God is really not like the force in Star Wars with a good side and an evil side, a light side and a dark side. So why does he think that? Well, he thinks that God in his essence is pure goodness and evil has no place in God. So why does he think that God is in his essence, pure goodness? Well, 
in order for God to be the first cause, God has to exist, right? We can't cause anything if we don't exist. And so God, as the first cause, exists, and Aquinas thinks that that which exists and has all that it should have is good, so God has to be good. But why couldn't God be a kind of combination of good and evil? Well, we talked before about this idea that God is not composite. And if that's true, if God is not composite, well, then God can't be a combination or a composite of partly good and partly evil. So if God is good and also God is not composite, it follows that evil has no place in God. Moreover, to be perfect is to lack, is not to lack anything, but evil is a lack of due perfection. We saw before how Aquinas argues that God is perfect. So if his arguments are correct, if it's true that God is perfect, and if it's true that evil is a lack of due perfection, well then God can't be evil in any respect. And Aquinas holds again that these truths that reason shows are also indicated by faith, that not only reason, but also faith teaches that God is good and God is not a combination of partly good and partly evil. Now, this view of Aquinas makes the problem of evil more difficult, because if it's true that God is pure goodness, uh, well, then where does evil come from? It'd be much easier for Aquinas to say, well, God is partly good and partly evil, and that explains why uh, we find a combination of good and evil here below, here on earth. But Aquinas thinks that both reason and faith point to the idea that God is perfectly good, that God has no evil in him whatsoever, and this compounds the challenge of the problem of evil. Another challenge that Aquinas faces is the problem of polytheism. In other words, even if we accept that there has to be an uncaused cause, why do we need to think, why should we think that there's only one? Why can't there be two? After all, you and I were caused not only by our mother, but also by our father. So maybe there are two uncaused causes or maybe there are 37. Moreover, why in the world should we think that the uncaused cause is the same being as the unmoved mover? And so maybe the five ways really prove five different gods. But if that's right, if Aquinas proves the truth of polytheism, then Aquinas's project of harmonizing faith and reason is going to be in real trouble. So how do we move forward from here? Well, let's think about what distinguishes one individual human being from another individual human being. What distinguishes you, for example, from me? Well, one thing would be age. I doubt that you're exactly the same age as I am, doubt you have the same birthday. And even if you did have the same birthday, we might be slightly different in age. I actually don't know when I was born, but let's say I was born at 10 in the morning and you were born at two in the afternoon. Well, again, we would be exactly the same age, at least in terms of birth. So one thing that distinguishes you and me is our age. A second thing would be accidental characteristics like skin color. So if I spend a lot of time in the sun, my, tan, my skin gets really tan. And so maybe my skin is more dark than your skin. So one thing that could differentiate us is accidental characteristics like the exact uh, color of our skin or how long our hair is or exactly what we weigh, things like that. 
A third thing that surely distinguishes uh, you from me would be bodily location. I'm in my office at LMU, I'm sitting in my chair. I don't see you here, so you're not here as far as I can tell. So we're in different bodily locations. We have different origins. I have one set of parents and you have another. And you could say that there are certain properties that uh, I have that you lack. So there's something you might say added to me that you don't have. And the same thing would be true for you. There's some certain things that are added to you that I don't have. So maybe right now you're wearing a Notre Dame football jersey and I'm not. Well, you would have something I don't have. Or there might be certain characteristics that I uh, don't have that you have, some subtraction, something that you would take away from me. So these two categories, some addition and some subtraction that differentiate you from me are kind of catch-alls. You can say any addition whatsoever to you that I don't have could differentiate you from me or any subtraction whatsoever from you that's not subtracted from me could differentiate you and me. So we differ in lots of ways, but those last two categories you might say are catch-alls. So what could distinguish one uncaused cause, let's call this one X, from another uncaused cause, Y? Well, could age differentiate them? Well, if, it's, if you're talking about an uncaused cause, then that does not have a beginning. And so it would have no particular age, right? If it doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end, it's not in time, it doesn't have an age. And so age cannot distinguish uncaused cause X from uncaused cause Y. How about some accidental characteristic like skin color or like hair length? Well, that wouldn't work either because an uncaused cause is a being that lacks all accidental characteristics as we talked about in an earlier lecture. And so no accidental characteristic could differentiate uncaused cause X from uncaused cause Y. How about bodily location? Well, that's not gonna work either because an uncaused cause is not composed. And if you're not composed, you can't be composed of bodily parts but if you're not composed of bodily parts, well, then you just don't have a body. But if you don't have a body, you can't, of course, be in any particular bodily location. So we can't distinguish uncaused cause X from uncaused cause Y in terms of bodily location. How about different parents? Well, that won't work either, right? We're talking about an uncaused cause. And so if you're really uncaused, well, you don't have parents. How about some addition, right? You add something to uncaused cause X that's not added to uncaused cause Y. Well, that's not gonna work either. An uncaused cause is not composed and therefore the uncaused cause is not composed of act and potency. And if there's no potency, then there's no potency to have something added. And so that's not gonna work. Well, how about some subtraction? You take something away from uncaused cause X that is not taken away from uncaused cause Y. Well, that's not gonna work either, right? Because just as some addition requires a potency, subtraction also requires a potency. In other words, you could uh, chop off my hand 
and subtract that from my body. But the reason that's possible is that I have the potency of having my hand chopped off. If I lacked that potency, you couldn't subtract that from me. And so if you have a being that has no composition and therefore isn't composed of act and potency, there's no potency to lose anything. There's no potency for any subtraction whatsoever. And so you couldn't distinguish uncaused cause X from uncaused cause Y by some subtraction. Well, the bottom line is this, if there is nothing that distinguishes uncaused cause X and uncaused cause Y, well then they really are not two distinct things. They are in fact, the very same thing. That is to say, there can only be one uncaused cause. There's no time to distinguish them. Divine, a divine being can't be distinguished by time as younger or older. And by divine here, I don't mean divine like Zeus or Hera. I mean divine in Aquinas' sense of a being that is the uncaused cause. There are no accidental characteristics and therefore alleged gods couldn't be distinguished by those. There's no body in God, so multiple de deities couldn't be distinguished by having different bodily locations. There's no origin or cause of God, so the gods can't be distinguished by parents or starting point. And again, when we talk about God here, the uncaused cause, we're not talking about gods in the, say, sense of Greek mythology. So it is possible that there are multiple gods, or you might say super powerful beings that exist. Maybe there are, I don't know, maybe there's aliens and they're incredibly powerful, whatever. But when Aquinas uses the term, what he means is uncaused cause. And so even if there are super powerful aliens, that wouldn't uh, undermine his argument in the least. And there's no addition or subtraction of any kind possible in God. So there's no way to differentiate uncaused cause one, two, three, four, etc. So if Aquinas' reasoning is correct, there is one and only one God. And Aquinas thinks that this truth also is indicated through faith, that Jews, Christians, and Muslims all agree that there is only one God. So we could do the same sort of consideration for the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover. In other words, maybe those two are not the same. But if we think about it, the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover also cannot be differentiated. So could they differ by age? Well, for the reasons we already said, that's not gonna work. If you have an uncaused cause, that being is eternal. If you have an unmoved mover, that being is eternal. And so if they're both eternal, they have no difference in age. How about accidental characteristics? Well, both the uncaused cause and the unmoved mover are beings of pure actuality. And so if they're beings of pure actuality, then they have no potency. And if they have no potency, they have no accidental characteristics. So accidental characteristics could not distinguish the uncaused cause from the unmoved mover. How about bodily location? Well, we talked before about the uncaused cause not having any bodily location. 
because the uncaused cause is not composed and doesn't have bodily parts. But the very same thing's true of the unmoved mover. The unmoved mover is also a being a pure actuality with no potency and therefore no uh, ability to be composed of parts and therefore not having any bodily location. The unmoved mover also has no origin. It's the unmoved mover. It doesn't come into existence. There's nothing you could add to the unmoved mover that would differentiate it from the uncaused cause because the unmoved mover has no potency and therefore it doesn't have the potency to receive some addition. Likewise, the unmoved mover is unable to have anything subtracted from it. The unmoved mover, again, is lacking potency and lacks the potency, therefore, of having anything subtracted from it. So there's nothing whatsoever that distinguishes in itself the uncaused cause from the unmoved mover. The uncaused cause and the unmoved mover, in other words, are the very same entity. If nothing whatsoever distinguishes them, then there's no difference at all between them. They're just the same thing. So why there can only be one unmoved mover who is also the uncaused cause, who is also the necessary being, etc. There's no time to differentiate them. There's no accidental characteristics to differentiate them. There's no bodily differences to differentiate them. There's no origin or cause to differentiate them. There's no addition or subtraction of any kind possible to differentiate them. So there's no way to differentiate these allegedly different gods, uncaused cause one, unmoved mover, two, the necessary being three, etc. So there's only one God. And this is something, again, a truth that both faith and reason indicate. Aquinas provides another argument from divine perfection. He says, if then there are many gods, there must be many perfect beings. But this is impossible. For if none of these perfect beings lacks some perfection, and does not have any admixture of imperfection, which is demanded for an absolutely perfect being, nothing will be given in which to distinguish the perfect beings from one another. So the idea is something like this. If you have two, allegedly, perfect beings, they're alike in being perfect. Okay, so they're alike in being perfect. Well, how do they differ? Well, there's nothing you could add to of imperfection to one, because if you added some imperfection to one, then the being in question would no longer be absolutely perfect. And there's nothing that one would lack in terms of perfection. Again, if they're absolutely perfect, they don't lack any perfection. And so those two uh, absolutely perfect beings, in fact, would not be different in any respect. But if there's nothing that distinguishes them in any respect, well, then they're not different beings at all. A third argument Aquinas gives that there can only be one uncaused cause, who is the same as the unmoved mover, etc., is from Occam's razor. So imagine you have a crime scene and the detective comes in and says, look, we, from all the evidence we have, we can account for it in terms of a single killer. The single killer, there's just one gun used and there's just one set of footprints leaving the crime scene and there's just one uh, 
extra set of DNA on the crime scene. In other words, all the available evidence can be accounted for by just one killer. Well, if that's true, then it's superfluous and doesn't make any sense to posit that there are two or three or five different killers. So too, in the same way, we can account for all causality, all motion, all contingent being, all grades of perfection and all order in the universe by just one principle, by just one God. And so it doesn't make sense to posit that there are multiple gods. So you might say the five ways to argue for God's existence are kind of like five different kinds of evidence pointing to the same cause. Imagine a blind beggar who receives a donation. There might be five different kinds of evidence that point to the same person giving the donation, right? Like you might have the fingerprints that point to one person giving this donation. You might have the DNA that's left on the coin pointing to this one person giving the donation. You might have uh, videographic evidence that shows this person giving the donation. You might have testimonial evidence of witnesses that point to this person giving the donation. And finally, you might even have the person himself saying, I gave the donation. So you could have five different kinds of evidence that all point to the same cause. And so Aquinas argues that the five ways also all point to the existence of just one God. Now this makes the problem of evil more difficult because if you posited that there were multiple gods, well, that would help explain evil. In Greek mythology, you had multiple gods, right? You had Hera and Zeus and uh, Athena and Ares. You had all kinds of different gods. And the conflicts among the gods is partly what gives rise to the evil in the world, according to Greek mythology. But if you hold, as Aquinas does, that there's only one god, well, this makes the problem of evil more difficult to, and more of a challenge. Now, if there is only one God, we've moved some ways closer to the God of Abraham. But there is a big problem in that the God of Abraham is also a God who knows us. And the God of Abraham is a being of uh, intimate knowledge of us and intimate care for us. But if Aquinas is right about who God is, it seems that the God of Abraham could not know us. Think about how we know things. We know things how? By being receptive and open. I learn things by reading things and by listening to things. And so we learn through receiving things from our senses. But if Aquinas is right, then God can't learn through receiving things through the senses. Why? Well, first of all, God doesn't have senses. God doesn't have a body, so he doesn't have eyes and ears and nose uh, that can sense things. Secondly, if Aquinas is right, God is a being of pure actuality with no potency to receive new information. And so it would seem that if Aquinas is right about who God is, then there's a huge problem with God knowing anything whatsoever about us. And there's also a problem with the divine will. The God of Abraham is a being that wills things. But how could this God of the uncaused cause, this God of the philosophers that Aquinas talks about, possibly will anything. When we will something, we go from what? Potentially willing it to actually willing it. But if Aquinas is right, God has no potency. 
And so God can't move from potentially willing something to actually moving, willing something. If God is really the unmoved mover, well, then God can't move at all and therefore can't will at all. But the God of Abraham does have a will. So it seems like what Aquinas is talking about is very distant from the God of Abraham. And of course, we have this problem of evil, that if God is all good, God would want to get rid of all evil. If God is all powerful, God could get rid of all evil, but obviously there is evil in the world. And we also talked about earlier this idea that if Aquinas is right, that Jesus is God, then it seems that Aquinas is wrong that God does not have a body. There seems to be an internal inconsistency in Aquinas's views. So next time we'll take up some of these questions and we'll try to see if Aquinas can reconcile these difficulties, if he can find a way forward to really bring together in a fruitful harmony, both faith and reason. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers.